Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is writer Sam Stevenson, whose book Gene Smith's Sink was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2017. He is a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow. He also authored The Jazz Loft Project for Alfred A. Knopf in 2009 and Dream Street for W.W. Norton in 2001. He has written for The New York Times, The Paris Review, Tin House, The Oxford American, and others. A former fellow of the NEH, two-time ASCAP Deems Taylor Virgil Thompson Prize winner, and Lehman Brady Visiting Joint Chair Professor in Documentary Studies and American Studies at Duke University and UNC Chapel Hill, He is a native of Washington, North Carolina, and now lives with his family in Bloomington, Indiana. Sam Stevenson, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. Thank you, David. I wanted to start by asking about something that you said in a 2017 Paris Review interview that you did. You said that as a biographer, it's difficult to get a picture of someone's childhood. It's the hardest thing a biographer has to do. Why is that? Well, I think it's mostly because it's the least documented part of your life. It's also perhaps the most falsely documented in some ways. In in other words, most family photographs, which are what might survive for any of us, are usually spectacular occasions, you know, vacations, holidays, birthdays, that kind of thing. It's usually like the normal what happens the other 350 days of the year is not is documented. Also, usually you're asked to smile and say cheese and you don't you don't smile and say cheese all day long, you know. So it's just really hard to get at. And also, if you believe Sigmund Freud and people like him, I think he explicitly wrote about this, that the psychiatric being is fully formed at age five, by age five. That doesn't mean you can't have trauma at age 10, 11, or 25, you know, that changes things, that causes new neural pathways to develop and things like that. But the core psychiatric being is pretty well established by age five. That means those first five years are really important, you know? And how, for one thing, the person is not going to remember it that well. What they do remember could be really different than what a sibling or a parent remembers. So it's just a a real puzzle to put together a view of what a child looks like. And then if you add the, you know, some biographical subjects are 200 years long gone, you know, that makes it even harder. That's why most biographies by page 30 they're already 25 years old, you know. <laughs> That's not an accurate depiction of what actually happens in the ramifications and reverberations and so much. And it's not only true with a biographical subject, it's true of ourselves, you know. If you can't really get yourself right, which is very difficult, I've spent a lot of time trying, then how can you get somebody else right? Well, that's what I want to ask you now for a picture of your childhood. You were born in North Carolina in 1966, and you grew up there. What was your childhood like? How do you think it affected your later interest and pursuits? Well, that's a great question. I 
read in the New Yorker magazine a few years ago, John McPhee, the writer who I admire a great deal, he had a piece in which he said that, and he's at a pretty advanced stage in his career. I think he's in his 70s, if not 80s now. He said that he once went through a list of everything he'd ever written, all the different pieces. It was like hundreds of pieces. And he marked a star beside each one, the subject of which came from something that he was passionate about before he was 18 years old. So almost everything he did for his whole life was something he cared about before he was 18. So this kind of overlaps with your first question. It's like getting at the first 18 years of somebody's life is so important. So what does mine look like? I mean, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm not nearly, I'm probably half as old as McPhee or a little more than half. So I don't have the prolific number of things I've done yet. But everything I'm doing, I can recognize a lot of music stuff. I mean, I grew up in, a, you know, we didn't think it was rural back then. In fact, our town of 10,000 people was the city for some people. Washington, North Carolina, 10,000 people in rural coastal North Carolina. There was a huge body of brackish water right there. Music was very important to me. I think my parents once told me that one of the first things I asked for when I was old enough to ask for something as a gift was a radio. <laughs> and that radio was in our bathroom for decades. And I used to listen to, you know, back then it was mostly top 40 stuff that we could hear back in the 70s and early 80s. But after dark, I could pick up on an AM radio, I could pick up stations as far as New York and St. Louis, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington. And I would just lay in bed and scroll the dial on the AM and just listen to these weird talk shows and sports. So I think all of that informed what I do in being kind of a documentarian, a writer that is paying attention to things. I'd never say I'm like a music writer or a music documentarian, but it's like most of the stuff I do ends up being about music. There's a music connection in some there, way. In some level, yeah. What else were you passionate about as a kid? Well, I was really into sports, both as a player and a consumer. What did um, you play? Well, baseball ended up being my main thing. And I actually had a cup of coffee on the baseball team at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, What position did you play for the uh, pitcher? Wow. Yeah, but in high school, you play everything, you know. I could throw pretty hard. So anybody that could throw hard was targeted as a pitcher. So you were in college. You said you had a cup of coffee with the baseball team. What were you majoring in in college? What did you think at that point in your life that you might find yourself doing in your professional life? Well, when I was a freshman, we had this thing called the freshman record, which had everybody all the freshmen in the school in one book, and it had your picture, and you had to list what you thought your major was going to be. And I put pre-med, because my father had been a physician, is a physician. And I went to the first chemistry class, that first semester of freshman year, and I, I just looked at the syllabus. I didn't even stay. I just looked at the syllabus, and I walked out. <laughs> And you just knew, right? There's this no <laughs> way I could do that. I mean, there's just no way. And that's held true. I mean, I just, uh, I ended up majoring in economics. 
which was pretty hard too, but not as hard as chemistry. But I, I didn't know. I really didn't know. I mean, I was probably, my career path, I got a job right out of college with my economics background. And I'd had two really good summer jobs while I was in college in New York City and in London that kind of looked good on my resume. So I was able to parlay that into a corporate banking job. That was my first job right out of college. I graduated and then a month later was putting on a suit and working at a bank. And I realized pretty quickly, almost as quickly as the the chemistry class, (laughs) that I wasn't really a fit there. So this would have been around the very end of the 80s, I'm assuming. Yes, I, I finished college in 89, yeah. So you realized that the corporate banking life was not yeah. for you. What did you end up spending the next several years doing? Well, I, I always had an interest in what drew me to economics was um, the puzzle of value and just why are certain things valued at one level and certain other things are valued at a different level. And economics seemed like a way to try to get at that. And I always did well in the theory type economics classes where you get in there and talk about real abstract things. And I used to always say, and I mean, people have written this too. I didn't make it up, but the invisible hand of the market, you know, they say you arrive at a price by the movement of an invisible hand. I mean, that that's so like uh, religious, you know, and to this day, I mean, I, Price values are really mysterious. I mean, we saw in 2008, I mean, the smartest economists in the world didn't know what was going to happen. There were some, maybe, but if you go to an auction, you can see how the price of something is arrived at. It's about people demanding more. You know, they're willing to pay more. So that's very explicit. But that's not how it happens in the bigger world. And, And so the prices are very mysterious. And even the most sophisticated economics textbooks talk about the movement of the invisible hand. I mean, that's like there's some godlike figure or some godlike force moving the price, the, you know, the laws of supply and demand. So that always really puzzled me. And I think growing up in my background in eastern North Carolina was about 50 percent white, 50 percent black. And my father had been the head of the school board during integration back then. And my family, and they still are, and we still are, huge proponents of the public schools. And, you know, I'm going to always do that. And I have a four-year-old kid, and I'm pretty sure that he will do that when he's old enough. And I just was puzzled by the differences in people's backgrounds, how some people had a lot of money, some people had almost none. And how does that really happen? It was still, you know, another thing that's hard to explain. So after I left banking, I went to Washington, D.C. to get involved in economic policy. And my first job was with a great organization called the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a very progressive think tank. And then I got a job after that with a congressman from Wisconsin, a Democratic congressman from Wisconsin, who was on the House Ways and Means Committee. And I was his Ways and Means Committee assistant, so I got to see how that committee worked for two years, like the inner workings of that. And then I tried to go to grad school in economics because my boss, Jim Moody from Wisconsin, had been an economist as well. He was a Ph.D. economist. So I tried that, and um, 
I was back to the chemistry class. I just couldn't do the math. That kind of rigorous, disciplined, mathematical kind of thing is not who I am. It took me a long time. I, mean, I was Now I'm getting up into my mid to late 20s now, you know, <laughs> and still wondering what what I'm going to do. What was it like to see the inner workings of the budgetary process or the congressional process? Was that like kind of a, a very bureaucratic or overwhelming thing to see or what was that like? Well, it was both thrilling and probably depressing. Thrilling in that, you know, a 25-year-old kid from eastern North Carolina could actually have some impact. You know, you could say, we'll put this money here, we won't put that money there. Yeah, yeah, well, the members of Congress, you know, the saying, they're an inch deep and 50 miles wide, you know, on everything. You know, you just can't know every issue, so you have to rely on your staffers. The staffers aren't paid very much, so they have to hire a 25-year-old rather than somebody in the middle of their career, which is what needs to be done. Those people are all lobbyists, you know, because you make five times or ten times more money. I mean, anything I were to say about it would probably be a cliche, but I loved it, actually. There are times that I think um, my wife and I have been talking about politics a lot the last couple of years, and uh, I do miss it on some level. You know, it's interesting that you say that you were interested in economics and understanding the value of things because your later work, when you look at it superficially, all this research and everything you did might not seem connected at all, and yet you're digging through all these artifacts and kind of assigning values to them too and assigning values to things that maybe haven't been valued at all by previous researchers or historians or determining what's significant about this person's life and what isn't and what should we include that wasn't included before. I've been doing this now for like 20 years and you're probably the first person that's ever said that. I usually have to point that out because people are like, how in the world did you go from economics and Capitol Hill to a dilapidated jazz loft in New York City and you just nailed it. It is discovering things that aren't valued and digging into them and caring about them and paying attention to them. And that's what I'm drawn to on a wide variety of levels. And I don't know clearly why that I'm drawn to that, but it is definitely a pattern. If you're just joining us on Profiles, our guest is Sam Stevenson, author of The Jazz Loft Project, Gene Smith's Sink, and Dream Street. He's also a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow. So after you traversed the younger years of your life and working in different fields, you ended up spending about 20 years researching and writing about, in one way or another, the life of W. Eugene Smith, who was a gifted and driven photographer who worked for Life magazine, undertook extensive studies of the city of Pittsburgh in the mid-1950s and an environmentally damaged area of Japan in the early 1970s. And uh, he also inhabited what proved to be a significant artist loft building in late 1950s and early 60s Manhattan. How did that 20-year pursuit come about? 
Well, when I was failing in graduate school in economics, I started working at a, a great independent bookstore in Raleigh, North Carolina, called Quail Ridge Books. And I ended up working there for about three years full time. And this was a period when I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. You know, I'm in my late 20s now. I've done a lot of different things and nothing had really taken. And and the bookstore, and I didn't know it was going to work this way, it really was my university. I'd always been a reader since I was a little kid, and I'd always been a writer. I wrote for the school papers and always did well in writing classes, classes that required writing. Classes that were multiple choice tests, I was baffled. Even... You know, when I moved here to Bloomington, I failed the driver's license test the first time because I just can't do multiple choice. You know, it's like that's the hardest test I've ever had to take. It was impossible. So I did well in writing, but I was always encouraged with the way I writing. So I started working at this bookstore in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I started writing for the newsletter. And there were some really smart customers who actually read the newsletter. And I remember there was a member of the North Carolina Symphony. I had written a piece about Václav Havel the Czech playwright and politician. And he came in, and this is a guy I really respected. I saw in the store a lot, and I think he played violin. He came in and said, I read your piece. He said, that piece could be published in national publication. And I was like, wow. You know, this is a guy that I really respect because of the books he bought. He bought really high-quality books, and we always we talked about them. So... Just little things like that started happening to me at the bookstore. And it would take me really a long time to describe how I went from the bookstore. The short version is the novelist Doris Betts was reading there. She had a new book that came out called Souls Raised from the Dead. And she made a comment. She said, there's a way to value things in our world that are different than what a CPA can count. And I, I just, I was enthralled by that line. And I wrote her a letter and she sent me a postcard and she was working at UNC Chapel Hill at the time. And she said, let's grab coffee. So I went and met her for coffee and she ended up pointing me towards the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. So I wrote a letter to Robert Coles, who was the founder of the Center for Documentary Studies and a magazine called Double Take Magazine that was published at CDS. And Coles, after I wrote him a letter, he called me, which floored me. And Double Take assigned me to, to review a book by a photographer named Camilo Jose Vergara. So I went from working in a bookstore to publishing a piece next to one by Joyce Carol Oates in Double Take. And that was really what got me off the ground Shortly after that, so, I, I mean, this is, you know, there's so many tangents. Um, but I was fascinated by the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and still am. The other day, I, I was flying from New York to Indianapolis, and it was a very clear day, and we flew right over Pittsburgh. And I could look down from my window seat and just see that city and think about the history of the steel mills and the rivers and the coal and the immigration there, really, really dense immigration in the Pittsburgh area. So I was interested in that. And 
in Raleigh, North Carolina, I stumbled upon a reference to W. Eugene Smith's massive photographic study of the city of Pittsburgh from the 1950s that he never finished. Smith was attempting like one of the most ambitious photographic projects in American history at that point, and he never finished it. He was trying to document the whole city. The whole right? city, it, yeah. It started out as a magazine assignment, and then he ended up spending, I think, over a year there just That's taking right. pictures. Yeah, he'd been hired. Smith had been hired by civic leaders in the city of Pittsburgh who were putting together a book to commemorate the city's bicentennial. And they had 100 scripted photographs that they wanted him to make. You know, this bridge, this neighborhood, you know, 100 photographs. And they expected it to take three weeks. And he ended up staying there for almost four years and made 22,000 photographs. And he never finished it. It was really unpublishable. So that was my first thing. So for Double Take Magazine, I told them about it. And they were like, wow, that sounds cool. Will you do a piece on it for us? So then I did a piece on W. Eugene Smith's Pittsburgh Project that was published in 1998. And that was the first year of 20 years researching Smith. <laughs> yeah, what happened to him in Pittsburgh? It does seem like it became like his white whale in a way. Definitely. Uh, I mean, um, I know he had been this World War II photographer already, was a renowned photographer, I believe, had worked for Life magazine, mm -hmm. had kids, had a family and mm -hmm. a successful career. And then he goes to Pittsburgh in the mid-1950s and just goes down this artistic rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, he had quit life right before he went to Pittsburgh, like two months before he went to Pittsburgh. And after a really successful career, he made a lot of money and was very, very well known. But he always battled the editors over control of his work. And so he went to Pittsburgh on this freelance assignment after he quit the magazine. And he was just kind of like unbridled. You know, he was... He was only, I think he was 35 years old, so he was in his prime. He was very young when he was a combat photographer in World War II. Um, he already had a lot of experiences in his life, and everything just kind of exploded in Pittsburgh. And I think he would have done that anywhere he had gone at that point in his life. But we're lucky, he was lucky, we're lucky now that it was Pittsburgh because it was America's primary industrial city at its pinnacle in the mid-1950s before manufacturing declined and suburbanism really took over. So it was, it was really a, a poignant picture of industrial urban America. That ended up becoming the subject of your first book, Dream Street, that came out in 2001. You took quite a few of the photos from Smith's work in Pittsburgh and did some text to accompany them. And that came out. And Smith himself, after he left Pittsburgh, ends up going to Manhattan and living in this kind of decrepit loft building, I think at 28th mm -hmm. and 6th Avenue, the building's still there today, that becomes this hub of artistic and cultural activity of both people that are now famous artistically, people like Thelonious Monk, Hal Overton, Steve Reich, all these people kind of passing through, as well as tons of other people that are, uh, to some extent, lost to the sands of time, except for the work that you've done. And he stays there for, I think, about nine years. And you ended up 
documenting all of that, putting out a book called The Jazz Loft Project that then was turned by WNYC into a, a 10-part radio series. There was a documentary film. I mean, it, a ton of material comes out about W. Eugene Smith's years in the jazz loft and the people that were there with him from the late 50s and the mid-60s. How did all the work on that come about? Well, while I was working on that Pittsburgh project at his archive in Arizona, the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona, I learned about these 1,740 reels of tape. Right, because I should say he documented everything as you came to find. I mean, he not only took tons of photographs because he was a photographer, but he also had tape recorders or microphones throughout the loft and was constantly taping what was going on in the loft, musical performances, people just talking, mm-hmm. things he was listening to on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was more than 4,000 hours right. of tapes, and you kind of came across all this in his archive, right? Yeah. The tapes were still in the same boxes that they had been in since they were deposited there in 1978 when the archive was created. And the names on the tape boxes, Monk, and you named some of them, Flonius Monk and others, really drew me to those tapes. Monk, uh, very specifically, because he, he was from eastern North Carolina, and I'm from there. And and just seeing Monk's name on all those tapes, I, I just and that nobody had ever heard, and that the University of Arizona had the rightful policy that you can't listen to them until you properly preserve them, because they feared catastrophic loss during playback. So then we had to raise a lot of money to transfer the tapes and listen to them for the first time. And we had a lot of success with grants. I mean, there was kind of a mysterious detective story that was alluring. And we had some luck with federal grants and one particular family foundation from Chicago, the Logan Family Foundation, Reva and David Logan Foundation, gave a lot of money. But 4,000 hours of tape takes a lot of time. Just to listen to them one time. I would imagine, yeah. yeah. I had one colleague, uh, his name's Dan Partridge, who for about seven or eight years, his job was to listen to those tapes. Just to listen to tapes yeah. of Gene Smith sitting around in the loft yeah. and maybe Thelonious Street noise. Street noise or radio shows. From, mm-hmm. It seems amazing, a, a rare opportunity that you'd come across something from that era, even although, you know, mediums had existed for sound mediums had existed for mm-hmm. some other kids. But here you've got somebody who was constantly taking pictures, constantly recording things that are going on. Like, it, it seems like it was a chance for you to, as much as anybody could, recreate an actual ongoing artistic community life. Yes, You know, one of the things that drew me, once we started listening to the tapes, I started realizing that there was a lot of mediocrity on the tapes. Like there's a lot of music that wasn't that good, frankly, even if it was by a great player. Because it was just everyday life. Yeah. It had never curated. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So this kind of gets back to my like childhood stories told by the Pinnacles. And I think the story of jazz is told by the Pinnacles. You don't get the practice and the the false starts, and you rarely have access to that 50 years later. And I could tell that Smith had done that. He documented that vast ocean of material that usually doesn't get documented, and that's just everyday life. And I used to say that if these people were just throwing darts or shooting pool, 
or playing cards, this would still be important. But the fact that some of them are really iconic jazz musicians, we're lucky that that's true. But I think I would have still done something. I don't know if I would have spent 20 years, but I would have done something with whatever it was. He documented what's normally not documented. The behind the scenes, the practice, the failed things, the arguments, you know, the fights, the drunk nights that just are really sloppy. You know, you don't normally get to hear those 50 years later. You know, somebody once wrote, after my book came out, somebody wrote in a classical music magazine, Sam Stevenson likes bad music better than good music. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, that's not really wrong. I mean, you know, (laughs) you just don't get to hear that 50 years later. So you had the Jazz Loft Project book where you had all these materials to work with, all this documentation. You went on to write a biography a few years later of Eugene Smith called Gene Smith's Sink. And it's an unconventional biography in that you kind of take an indirect approach to how you write about him. You write almost as much about the people who passed through his life as you do about Smith himself. Why did you decide on that particular approach, especially when you had somebody who had documented so much of his own life? Well, that was a hard-won process for me because the book that I proposed to my publisher, Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, was a traditional biography. Uh, It was going to be 500 pages, 125,000 words, and it was going to be chronological like most biographies. And I had the material to do that, and I had a lot of the writing. But I just didn't love it. You know, I didn't love it. But there were parts of it I loved. And so I went through my manuscript and put check marks beside the parts that I loved, like really loved. And then I threw out everything else. So utility, in other words, was out the window. Utility was what I was bored with, with the writing, like having to explain. And then in 1940, he did this. And then in 1941, he did this. Having to fill in all those, connect those dots, you know, with material that I didn't really care about or I hadn't done enough research on. So I threw out everything I didn't love. And I ended up with about 40-some pieces that were roughly 1,000 words to 2,000 words in length. And... I had a like a card for each one, and I taped them up on the wall, and I had the name of each chapter, which I knew by heart, on the card, and I had all 40 of them up on the wall in my place in Durham, North Carolina, and I just started looking at them and started imagining sequences, and that's how I arrived at what I did. So it's not a conventional biography. It's very digressive and reflective and associative, and I found that A lot of people are thrilled by that. Sadly, the people that were probably wanting that book the most are disappointed. And that's Smith nuts and photography nuts, you know, who want to know what lens was he using on that photograph that he made. And I have all that information. It's just like, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just not, I don't know. The question is, what do I do with all that now? Because I have, like, in storage just all this information that I've gathered over the years that is not in my book. 
So I don't you have know. archives about Eugene Smith's archives. <laughs> yeah. right? Well, that's a good idea. Maybe maybe that's what I do with that. I just dump all my stuff at his archive in Arizona. <laughs> I'm David Brent Johnson, and you're listening to Profiles. Our guest is writer Sam Stevenson, a 2019 Guggenheim Fellow and author of Gene Smith's Sink, The Jazz Loft Project, and Dream Street, all of which connect in one way or another with the life and work of photographer W. Eugene Smith. Uh, Gene Smith died in 1978, about 20 years before you first began to delve into his work and life. If you'd been able to meet him, what would you have asked him about? Um... Why did he make all these tapes? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd ask him. Why did you make 4,500 hours of tapes <laughs> in a New York loft? What do you think he might have said? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I really I really don't know. There wasn't a logical outcome. Today, if you did that, you might be able to do something digitally. But these are all 7-inch reels of tape, you know, analog tape. I mean, what do you do with that? I really don't know. We ended up using it as the basis for, you know, my writing, a radio series, as you mentioned, and a documentary film. But that's still just scratching the surface of what he did. When your biography came out in 2017, you were finally able to kind of start closing the door on this 20-year chapter of your life. I want to ask you what that was like. I mean, I would think in a certain way it would be a huge relief, but I also wonder if there was a sort of like well, what do I do now, you know, when a certain topic or person or personality has been occupying such a central place in your life for so long? It was more of a relief. And I think the style of the book that I chose, which is digressive and associative and reflective, helped me achieve contentment with ending that 20-year chapter. Because if I had tried to write a 500 or 800-page biography with every single thing that I'd learned in that book, the day after it was published, I would learn something else that was not in it. So in other words, you never finish that. You know, I could publish an 800-page biography of Eugene Smith and then another 500 pages 10 years later and then another 500 pages 10 years. You just never, it's never ending. So I think the more, if I want to pat myself on the back, I would say more poetic sort of style helped me leave it alone. There are a few things out there in the world right now that are Smith-related that are happening, and people have asked, like, don't you want to be involved in that? And I'm I just, I'm pretty happy not being involved. <laughs> well, you, well, you know, even while you were writing about Smith, you frequently had other irons in the fire. One thing that I find intriguing in looking over things that you were working on was the Bull City Summer Project, which ties into baseball. And you even, I think, started something called the Rockfish Stew Institute of Literature and Materials. It was kind of related to that. It was, I believe, an attempt to sort of have a bunch of different people document a whole season of a baseball team. Yeah. In some ways, that idea started with Smith's documenting of the loft. And I thought, and I, you know, and I love baseball. And I the Durham Bulls are a very important part of 
That's a North Carolina North team. North Carolina right? team. It's they're um, a minor league team. Or? Yeah, so triple A. And I felt you know Smith documented that building that there were a lot of interesting things going on inside of in New York in the fifties and early sixties. Why don't we document this building, uh, a baseball stadium here in Durham during the course of a season, and we'll do the same thing he did. We won't worry so much about who wins or loses, you know, we're just going to get everyday things at the stadium. It could be in the concession stand or in the parking lot or batting practice. You know, it, it didn't have to be the actual game. Baseball is documented pretty well by itself, box scores and highlights and, and articles. So let's get some world-class photographers in here who are not sports photographers and have them inhabit the stadium and see what they find. So that's really what we did. We were lucky to get some funding for that, so we were able to hire Alex Soth, a great photographer who lives in Minnesota, uh, Hank Willis-Thomas, Hiroshi Watanabe, Kate Joyce, and a number of others who are not sports photographers at all. And we had a great team of writers, too. And I'm still really proud of that project. And I didn't really do much for that except manage it, which was a lot. But I didn't do that much. You were like the team manager. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And it was kind of a relief for me after all these years of living in the past. It was kind of a relief to document something that's happening now instead of document something that happened 50 years ago. What is it about baseball that has hooked you so much as a fan? You know, there's so many things that people – I mean, I – always say, like, it's the one sport that doesn't have a clock, you know, although they're talking about changing that. But um, I think, you know, most sports, almost all of them, team sports, are based on the concept of warfare, where you have your home and the other team has theirs and you're fighting over real estate. Almost all sports are like that. Basketball, football, soccer are certainly like that. The goal is to beat the other team into submission and take their goal. Baseball is not like that. It's not a battle over real estate. And the players are out there in odd places around the field. Something about that, I think, is really unique. You've always been a baseball fan. You've also always been a music fan as well. And you have a a new project that's tied in your Guggenheim Fellowship that deals with the rock band Jane's Addiction and in a broader sense, the cultural scene of California in the 1980s. What is it about that particular band and that place and that era that captivated your interest in this new project? Well, I started thinking about Jane's Addiction last year because of the midterm elections. And I saw Jane's Addiction play in November of 1990 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It was one week after the Senate race of Jesse Helms and Harvey Gantt. Which was a very polarizing Senate race. Yes. It was also, I think, like the most nationally covered Senate race that year. Harvey Gantt was an African-American architect and mayor of Charlotte. And he was leading that race for most of the time. And then he lost at the end by like one or two points. And a lot of us were very disappointed in that. And there was all kinds of voter suppression things going on there. I mean, I know people that got mailings that said, if you've moved in the last three years, you're ineligible to vote and things like that. So a week after that race, I went to see Jane's Addiction play at Memorial Hall 
in Chapel Hill. And it just kind of blew my mind. I mean, this band, I'd listened to their records until that point, but there was a really diverse audience at the show, more diverse than just about any show I've been to since then. There's a lot of women at the show, which for a band that played really loud was unusual at the time. And I think the band was not, they didn't present the kind of image of a metal band at all, even though they were kind of a metal band. They seemed a little more androgynous yeah, to me. Yeah, Perry were, Farrell, the lead singer in particular, seems more yeah. androgynous. I mean, they were, you know, I mean, the comparisons are like David Bowie, you know. But anyway, I've just been thinking about that time period and that band and what they achieved and how I think that band has kind of been lost to history in some ways. They're not given the kind of credit that they, they really opened the door for some bands that came after them like Nirvana and Pearl Jam by being very edgy and challenging and loud and also selling a lot of records. Nobody had really done that before. So anyway, I, I just had this kernel of an idea, and I went to L.A. and spent 10 days late last year and just started doing some preliminary interviewing. And I just found out that my memories are pretty accurate, I'm right, and that in L.A. what they did was, I mean, even more profoundly drawing together disparate groups that normally didn't overlap in L.A. at all. And they would come to their shows. I mean, there'd be Latino, black, white, LGBT, punks, metalheads, deadheads. I mean, there were like all these factions that were coming to their shows. And their shows were often in abandoned buildings in downtown L.A., Back then, the clubs had this pay-for-play policy where you had, if you were going to play a show at the Troubadour, you had to bring a grand, you know, and give it to them. <laughs> I mean, not only did they not pay you, you had to pay. And the Janes guys were like, there's there's no way, you know. And there were a lot of abandoned buildings in downtown L.A. because it was not a good time for downtown L.A. And so, I don't know. It just got – suddenly, I became um, – Thinking about it almost in terms of like Smith again, like this is a portrait of a scene. Yeah, you know? it, it sounds like a, a like an '80s indie rock underground community version of the jazz loft in a way. Maybe. Kind of is. Maybe not all concentrated one building, but more in one city. Yeah. When I came back from LA the first that trip, I told my wife Courtney, you know, this could be a ten year project if I can get the funding, because there's just endless angles. You know, Ronald Reagan was president, and he was from California, and Reagan Bush, a lot of the policies back then, they're slashing taxes and quadrupling defense spending, and the build-up to the Persian Gulf War was right in the Jane's Addiction prime of 1991. So there's a lot going on that is kind of a backdrop to this band, and also it makes it timely today. I think... It's easy to forget that Perot and Stockdale got 20% of the vote in 1992. Ross Perot Ross and Admiral Perot, Stockdale yeah. that ran as independents. Ran as independents in 1992. 1992. Presidential election. They got 20% of the vote or just under 20, like 19.5% of the vote or something like that. Running as independents, which was astounding. And they had pride in ignorance of policy. 20% of the vote. What we're dealing with now was very evident then. 
So do you see this turning into a book or a, a multimedia project? Or how do you see the work on California in the 80s and Jane's addiction? What do you think will be the ultimate outcome of that work? I don't know. Probably a book. In this case, um, a lot of the people are still alive, right? Yeah. As opposed to, I know you did talk to a lot of people who had passed through the loft, but also a lot of significant people from that time. Yeah, passed away. yeah. This is an interesting project because two of the original four band members in Jane's Addiction are actually younger than me, one year younger. I mean, these guys are only like fifty now. So you they're know? they're your, it's your generation, yeah. really. And they know? took really different paths. Like none of the four guys ever considered going to college. So it's a kind of an interesting look at a different path than the one I took at the same time. But, you know, there are models for what I might do with a book. Grill Marcus, uh, Lipstick Traces, uh, John Savage's book on the Sex Pistols. Um, England's Dreaming. England's Dreaming. Both of those books are about the Sex Pistols, and they both go widely into those times. Right. Um, and I think this could happen with that. But I don't know yet. This is Profiles in WFIU. I'm David Brent Johnson, and I'm speaking with writer Sam Stevenson, who is the author of several books that deal in one way or another with photographer W. Gene Smith, and who is a Guggenheim Fellow, currently at work on, among other things, a project about the rock band Jane's Addiction and California in the 1980s. All of this work has required you to go to a lot of different places, talk to a lot of different people. Have there ever been any physical places you never thought you'd find yourself in as a result of your research and work or sort of, wow, how did I end up here moments? Uh, definitely. Um, Minamata, Japan. I went there in 2011, and I was following Eugene Smith's footsteps. Is that where he went in the early 1970s yeah. to document some environmental yeah. damage? Yeah, he went there to document corporate dumping of mercury into the bay, which made its way into the drinking water and made its way into the bodies of the citizens there. But the only fallout to that was the, the chemicals were metastasized in the wombs of pregnant women. And the women were fine, but the babies were born deformed. And the government had kind of buried this. And Smith went there with the key partnership of his second wife at the time, Eileen, who was Japanese-American, and she really made that project happen. But anyway, I went there to follow their footsteps in Minamata. In Minamata, Japan, I often say would be like someone from Japan coming here and going to Gulfport, Mississippi or somewhere like that, some mm -hmm. coastal place down in the south or some, you know, it's it's very rural. And there are several chapters about that trip in my book, Gene Smith's Sink, and uh, I'd love to go back there, actually. But there definitely were moments when I was there because it is, you know, it is as foreign as you can get to someone like me being there because it I mean it's possible for an American to go to Tokyo and speak English the whole time if you stay in the right hotels you know the tourist hotels and things like that they're going to have staff that speak English 
that wasn't my experience in Tokyo because I wasn't staying in those kinds of hotels. We, I was more in the Japanese business traveling hotels. But, but then when we especially got to Minamata, there was no one speaking. I mean, it, it was, I realized that I haven't had that experience very often of being in a place that is 100% foreign to me. I kind of would like to have that more. I went to Italy last year, and it's not the same. Our languages have a, a root that is the same, and you can be there for two weeks and start picking up on some of the language, you know? That's not the same, and especially, uh, I mean, the, reading those symbols. I just I wish that I could read those symbols, you know? That language is so fascinating. So those are geographical places, someplace like a rural area in Japan. You've also spent a lot of time digging into archives, especially W. Gene Smith's archives. What's it like to be in a place where so many materials of one person's life are gathered? Is there any kind of weird feeling or energy that you pick up on uh, digging into archives? Well, I love archives. I mean, I love libraries. I, I go to the library here in Bloomington almost every day, the downtown public library, which is a remarkable place, by the way. We take our son there. It's a stunningly great library. I don't know. I find myself at home in archives, and it might be the same reason why I enjoyed being in Minamata, Japan. It's like a a different world. It's somebody else's world. And I've learned that I like that. Um, So archives are thrilling to me. And uh, Smith's archive was gigantic. It weighed 22 tons when it was... 22 tons? Yeah, it was 44,000 pounds when it was deposited at the University of Arizona. Where do they keep it? Well, I mean, um, you know, a lot of the weight was records and books, which they got rid of, which was disappointing. But I understand he had 25,000 vinyl records, and that was a lot of weight. You know, those are heavy. But it's a really nice archive, I and mean, it's one of the leading photography archives in the country, if not the world, and so they have a lot of space. But his his archive is the biggest one there. Is it just like an immense room that has, like, the photographs are here and the tapes are there? That's and right. The writings are yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge building. Has and it all been cataloged? Well, we cataloged the you tapes. Can, yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, we're you know what? We're actually lucky that they kept the tapes because the tapes had a really bad reputation among the photography world. The photography world thought that Smith had lost his mind, you know, and that he was using whatever resources he had to buy taping equipment and tapes. And he should have been using those resources to enhance what he was better at doing, which is making photographs. So the tapes were seen as indulgent and kind of lunatic. And thank goodness they saved them. What's it like to encounter all of that extensive documentation? Is it ever depressing in a way? Is there ever, were there ever moments of sort of like giving you a sense of the futility of somebody apparently almost trying to just document every moment of his life? Well, I think that, The answer is yes. And I think that's why I arrived at the final form of my book. Just like I was saying earlier, there's just no way to get it all. Smith used to have this saying, 
a true perfectionist would never begin because there's no way to be perfect, you know. And so I think after all these years, I've found a method and a style of working that I trust, which is kind of following my passions, following what I love, following my hunches. Um, not everything works out, but it's the only way I can really work. And that's kind of thrilling to me to work that way and to be able to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate because a lot of the grant proposals and things, the kind of deck is stacked against working in the manner I work because you have to tell people where you're going before you start. And I'm just not very good at that. I usually don't know. It's interesting to me that, you know, ultimately all this documentation that Smith undertook wasn't really futile because you came along yeah. <laughs> and you turned it into something. It, it would still be out there moldering in the well, archives in Arizona if you hadn't turned it into something that was more accessible to a broader audience. Well, there's a funny story. Um, so Smith had a longtime girlfriend named Carol Thomas who was critical to him. He had a series of people that really helped him do what he did who were very smart people, and Carol was one of them. We met somewhere in Santa Monica for coffee. This was, God, this was probably 15 years ago. But it was after my first book, Dream Street. So she had seen that. And I said to her, you know, Smith seemed to have this knack for people coming along and helping him do what he couldn't do himself at just the right time. She looked me dead in the eye and said, he's still doing it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. And that, that was really kind of a humbling moment, you know. So that's another reason why I went into these other characters like her. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to pay so much homage to this guy. You know, there's a whole chapter on Eileen Smith in the book who really made that Minamana project happen in almost every single way. It's really her project. So it kind of seems like it ends up that the story of any one person's life is actually the story of many lives. The same thing is happening with this James Addiction Project already. I mean, there are people that were integral to that band. I can't really say too much at this point. But um, the story that gets told is just never the whole story. Takes a village to write a biography. <laughs> well, it, uh yeah, I think it's probably true with anything. Well, I wanted to ask you something else about how, in speaking of other people and people's lives, in recent years, you've become a father. Obviously, that's affected your day-to-day -day life as it does anybody who becomes a parent, but has it in any way affected your work? Beyond, I would imagine, the normal, like, well, I can't just work all afternoon right now because I have to go pick up my kid at daycare or whatever. But how? Do well, you I think it's made my work better. Definitely. Um, I mean, to say it puts things in perspective is kind of a cliche. and That's not really what I mean to say. But well, one thing I'll say is parenting is, is there are no formulas for that. There are no formulas for parenting. We would love for there to be, and that's why there's so many books on it. My wife, Courtney's background is in studying the reproductive behavior of baboons, primates. So we have learned a lot about the reproductive behavior and parenting of humans, you know, <laughs> with our son. And I just, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I should let her speak. Um, 
I think the mother always knows a bit more about it. But I find some comfort in knowing that there's not really a formula that applies to every kid. And I think that gives me some confidence in the way that I work. Projects are almost like babies, you know. My last question for you is I wanted to ask, what do you ultimately hope for your work in all of its capacities to accomplish? Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I do believe in this idea of valuing things that are obscured. That's not to say I think I'm some sort of Superman that can cast value around. It's really just about being alert and being attentive and caring. So I I would hope one person would read something I've written and, and be a little more caring. That's what I want. Our guest on Profiles today has been writer and researcher Sam Stevenson. Sam, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.